Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for being here today. It's always a wonderful pleasure to be here and worshiping God together and fellowshipping with you. Uh, well, if you don't mind, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And as you turn to Luke chapter 1, let me just kind of catch you up on where we were last week. Uh, where, where There's just so much in what we kind of call now the Christmas story that is far too much to get into one Christmas message as is often attempted to do. So as I was looking over all the material uh, to, to prepare for Christmas, I said, let's just go ahead and make a big series of it. There's just so much great information there and so much we need to emphasize and so much we need to, to focus on. So um, we've I've put two main characters in this series. One, of course, is the messenger and one, of course, is the Messiah. And uh, the, this story is really hard to separate because of their stories are so intermingled and you can't have one without the other. So last week we looked at the fact that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's over 400 years of silence. In other words, God does not speak to a prophet. There are no angelic visits. It is, it is virtual silence from God. Of course, the creation still speaks of, of Him being God, but no divine specific revelation from God. For over 400 years, there is nothing. So if you have a blank page between New Testament and Old Testament, that's around 400 years. Some people even write 400 years on that page as a reminder to them when they flip that page, a lot of years have gone by. But the last prophecies that were over in the Old Testament had to do with the coming messenger. There would be one, the book of Malachi says, like Elijah, a prophet, a herald, a messenger that would come before the king, before the Messiah. And we looked at that, how back in that day in the culture that was common, if a king was coming to town, they would send a messenger ahead to prepare the town for the coming arrival of the king. And so the, the Jewish people had continuously looked for this messenger that was to come. They had prayed for the Messiah to come, the messenger to come. The, the, the whole uh, story of the Old Testament is about the coming Messiah, the Savior that was to come. But the messenger had to come first. And all of a sudden we get to the New Testament. And what happens to break that silence? Well, a lot of times we overemphasize it's hard to say overemphasize because obviously the birth of Jesus is the most important. But sometimes we so emphasize his birth at Christmas that we don't realize there's some major events happening before that. So the silence is broken by Zechariah, uh, a priest, and his wife Elizabeth uh, could not have children. They were One was old, one was advanced in years, if you remember. The wife was advanced, the man was just plain old, old all right? But uh, we, we see that he goes into the holy place to pray for the nation of Israel. He pours the, the incense over the hot coal, the smoke, the aroma goes up, and he begins to pray, and immediately there is the presence of Gabriel, the angel, next to him. And the silence is broken by a few words. Gabriel says, your prayers have been heard. How awesome is this? I mean, to, to pray. Can you imagine just praying to God and all of a sudden, boom, there's the angel right next to you, right? So fear, of course, comes over Zechariah. There's an angel right next to him. Obviously, the angel is not wearing diapers and holding a bowing arrow, all right? This is a real angel, uh, very intimidating, came from the presence of God, angel. And uh, they begin to communicate. And the angel begins to say that you're, you're going to have the messenger. The one prophesied from the Old Testament is going to be your child. He doubts that it can happen because they are old, they are advanced. And so next thing you know, Zechariah is cursed. He cannot speak, but the silence is broken. And Zechariah would remain silent until the birth of John. Zechariah comes off duty as being a priest and his wife uh, does 
conceive. She it becomes pregnant with this one. And this is not a supernatural birth as we're going to see with Jesus, not to that level, but it is supernatural and they were both beyond childbearing years, but now they were able to have a child. And not just any child, this was an extremely special child. This was the one that was going to go before the king, before the Messiah, to announce the Messiah's coming. We looked a little bit last week, and we'll look again at how he prepares the way in a few weeks. But he prepares the people by telling them that they're a sinner. So when the Savior comes, they understand they are a sinner. They know they are a sinner, and they are drawn to the Savior to forgive them of their sin. You can't have anyone saved until they first realize they're a sinner, right? And that's a, that's pretty, it's pretty common in our culture now to not call anything sin. Nothing is sin anymore. It's a way of life. It's a choice, et cetera, et cetera. But the three-letter word sin is often never spoken of. But until you convince people they're a sinner, they don't need a Savior, right? So he goes ahead to present to them that they are sinners. So this is what we began to see last week unfolding was Zechariah, Elizabeth, Gabriel. The silence is broken. They would have the messenger. Now let's turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And we're trying to follow the story as we build up to Christmas in the way it is presented chronologically, just going through this and, uh, and seeing what the Scriptures have to tell us about everything that is going on at this time. So obviously at the beginning there of Luke chapter 1, Verse 26, birth of Jesus foretold. So we have the birth of the messenger that is foretold in those previous scriptures. And now we have the birth of the Messiah that is about to be foretold. Let me read through. Um, I'm just going to kind of go verse by verse a little bit through this. We'll read some sections because we do have quite a bit to cover today. Uh, But just kind of verse by verse through this at the beginning. Uh, Verse 26, Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Uh, And I I just put it as I was studying this today, just a special note to Luke, who has given us this gospel, who has written it in such magnificent detail. Because he puts in here, if you you go back to chapter 1, he lets us know names and and who is reigning and, and these specific places. And over here in the next part of Luke also, it has the specific places and the cities that these things are taking place. Uh, this Bible is not based on mythology. It is not like the Book of Mormon, all right? The Book of Mormon has lots of cities and places in it, but there are no places that exist that are actually in the Book of Mormon. It was just written from a guy's imagination. However, we go to the Book of Luke, and we see these cities that are specifically there. We can look back in history. Many of these cities we can look at now, and these cities are still there now. And these are real people in history. So in other words, this is not a book uh, that's false or fake. It is proven, is archaeologically proven, geologically proven, historically proven. These are real places. These are real events that are really happening in real time. So even in verse 26, in the sixth month, I mean, what a detail. He puts in the exact months of these things happening from Elizabeth uh, conceiving uh, John. And then now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, we just saw Gabriel earlier speaking over there with Zechariah, and now he is coming to speak with Mary. He has been sent from God. Let's look at verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And uh, many of you that have studied this before are well aware of this, but the word betrothal or betrothed is, is, is kind of an archaic term as far as we don't use that anymore. But this was an extremely serious, in time, serious time before marriage uh, that, is, that is way above what we call now being engaged. It was, it was a full commitment to be married that could not be broken unless there was a divorce. So if you were betrothed to a person, you couldn't change your mind and just go about your business like people do sometimes when they're engaged. But this was so serious that if something were to happen to cause them to, to, to split apart, there would have to be a full-out and official divorce. So this is extremely serious, the relationship they are in. They are not married yet. They are not living together. There's no, no relationship like that. But it is a commitment before God and before their relatives that they are going to get married. Okay, So the virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And looking at this verse 27 again, we can look over some of these details that Luke has specifically put in, put in, put in this passage uh, very easily that sometimes may not resonate with us as being extremely important. But this house of David comment in verse 27, even that he throws in here as if it's no big deal as if we're reading it, but it was extremely important that this young lady come from the house of David, even the one that she's going to give birth to, Jesus, that his stepdad, you might say, comes from the house of David as well. Why is that important? Well, the Bible, this, this is the, the culmination of the story of the Bible that is happening now. And all along throughout human history, God has, has spoken to man about the coming one, the one that would, that would save them from their sin, this Messiah, this Savior figure, the Lamb of God that was to come to take away sins. And all these details have been built. So you go back, back way, way back to the book of Genesis. You have God announcing to Adam and Eve that it was from them one of their kind that would come one who would destroy Satan. So it's a very basic prophecy. We now know that the coming one would be human. All right, He would not be an animal that we think of in the forest or anything like that. The coming one that would save them from their sin is actually human. And then it builds. All right, God says from Abraham. He chooses Abraham. He says from your seed will come the Messiah. And it's not from Ishmael, it's from Isaac. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And God, again, speaks through uh, to Isaac and says it's through Jacob that the Messiah is going to come. So we know this lineage, all right, is carrying on, not Esau. And then Jacob has many sons, right? He has 12 different sons. And it is not Joseph, it's not Reuben that's chosen. But the prophecy is coming that is from the line of Judah that the Messiah is going to come. And then later it is from, the, from Jesse's family. And then it is from, God specifically chooses from David that the Messiah is going to come. So all, the, all these clues, you might say, God has is, is given us these signs that have to be fulfilled for this to be the actual Messiah. And he has to come from this exact lineage for him to be the Messiah. So Luke throws this in here. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but... If anyone ever claimed the Messiah had come and he was not from the line of David, then immediately the Jewish people reading this would know 
that he is not the Messiah. So Luke puts this detail even in here. And we have the the genealogy of Luke. We have the genealogy over there in in Matthew as well. Both these writers have have put the genealogy in here. Why is that so important? I remember as a kid trying to read through the Bible and reading verse by verse and never skipping one verse and coming to the names and and just laboring through the names because I knew they were important for some reason because they were in God's Word, but I had no clue why they were there or why they were that important. But those names are so important because it connects the Messiah to the lineage that goes all the way back through human history just like God said it would. So it is extremely important. Joseph and Mary are from the line of David. They are from the house of David. Uh, We see this in 2 Samuel. You don't have to turn there, but you're certainly welcome to today. I do have it on the screen, but one of the prophecies, and, and we could go deep, deep into this, but we're not for the sake of today's message, but just to, so you can kind of see what we're talking about. So God speaks through a prophet that he has chosen, and the prophet then speaks these words that are from God. God knows all things perfectly, past, present, and future, so he can speak of a future event and know every single detail of it because God does not change. He knows everything that is going to happen. You can't sneak up on God and change the future. So he, he pulls some information. He gives it to a prophet here, and the prophet speaks it. We see this in 2 Samuel. Let me read this one to you today. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, 17. It is Samuel the prophet, and he is speaking to Nathan, sorry, speaking to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put it, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here, Nathan is speaking to David, a prophet from God, saying, There's going to be come, one come from your seed, from your lineage, whose kingdom is not going to fade like we, they do now when a king dies, another king comes. But this is, this is forever. This is a special king that is going to come whose, whose reign will never end, whose kingdom will always be. So these are the type of prophecies that begin to build. So Luke, giving us this information from the house of David is extremely important. Let's move on. Look at verse 28. And he came to her, going back to Gabriel and the scene that's taking place here. He says, and he came to her, Greet and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, again, this is so short, so quick, but, but some of this is so personal. It's, it's amazing. We saw this with Zechariah as well. He's praying, and, and God hears his prayer. Now, that, that verse alone is mesmerizing to me. Sometimes we might think, oh, God's so busy and he's doing so much and there's so many people praying to him. Do my prayers really even matter? But yet he hears every single prayer. Zechariah was answered right on the spot. And, and here we have Mary, who is a very seemingly insignificant young teenager at the time who is about to be married to a carpenter. She is not from royalty. She's not a prince. She doesn't have great riches. She's not from a palace or anything like that. But yet, 
Look what the creator of the world says about her. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. God knows every detail about her. Uh, there was no, you know, oftentimes we search for significance and we look for significance in all the wrong places and we, we try to build our houses bigger and more money here and relationships here and spouses look to spouses for their significance or kids' approval or kids look to parents for approval in life and, and, and all these do not lead to where you want them to lead. You're always left empty-handed. A relationship on earth is never going to be, should not be the ultimate reason why we live but it is always God first. So we live towards God first, living as if he is seeing everything because he is. And we see this with Mary as we dig into her life a little bit. We have someone here who is not looking for significance in the world, but they are doing their life, and she's living her life as best as she can, living according to the principles of God. And uh, so it is with us. Oftentimes we think at the end of the day, you know, whose life, as a, as a pastor, I'll think, oh, whose life did I impact? What did I do today? And, and I forget that the most important one I'm on earth to please is, is not those around me. They are important, but number one is God, and then it's the people around me. So we see her uh, not, not royalty as we would think of royalty, not from riches as we would think of riches. What we find out about her life is she's, she's a pretty poor person. She's a young teenager, and is about to be married to a carpenter, uh, quite you know, kind of, kind of very, very, you might say vanilla. They're not sticking out of the crowd. There's no reason where everyone goes, oh, of course it's Mary. Of course it's Joseph. We knew it would be them all along. In fact, it's pretty shocking, it seems, to everyone that they have been chosen. All right, so let's look at verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Once again, we see uh, the most common emotional feeling or experience people have when they see an angel is not, oh, cute and cuddly or nice feathers or anything like that. Uh, we, our artistic impersonations of angels is very skewed and very wrong, but they are, people are always intimidated when they see an angel. They've come from the presence of God. There's a sense of holiness about them, and now they're right there with him. So the angel always has to say, fear not, don't be scared, don't be afraid afraid, all right? So the same greeting, basically, that Gabriel gave Zechariah, he gives here to Mary as well. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he'll be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever." And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Uh, does this sound familiar? Uh, it sounds almost exactly like what we just read over there in Second Samuel, right? That the prophecy from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier that was given to Nathan to speak to David. Now, we have Gabriel basically quoting that prophecy. We saw Gabriel do the same thing when he was announcing the birth of the messenger. He used the information from Malachi and, and Isaiah to announce to Zechariah that he would have the messenger and this is what the messenger would be like and act like. And Gabriel uses the word of God. He's saying, hey, I'm announcing to you what was announced a long time ago is now about to be fulfilled. We see Gabriel doing the same thing here. He is saying, this is not brand new information to you. This is the fulfillment of that information. Look, what, we, what God said way back here is now coming to fruition. 
Now is going to be the actual time. So we look at this passage and we often read over this information too quickly. Uh, I think often times about why that is, is is because we do live on this side of the Messiah. They looked forward to the Messiah, to his coming. They prayed for the coming of the Messiah. And now the Messiah has come. And now we, we know the story very well. We see the manger scenes all up at Christmas. And, and oftentimes we take this message for granted. But this was the moment of moments. This is what generation after generation after generation after generation after generation of Israelite people had prayed for, had longed for, for this moment where the Messiah would actually come. So this, this is it. The, what we are reading about today and in these next few weeks, this is it. This is the ultimate message from God. In this, we have the gospel that a people, humanity, us, who are born by by nature, objects of God's wrath because we've sinned against him, that the good news is that God has sent someone perfect to represent us to him. So it's not on our own righteousness anymore that we can be saved, but it's a faith in his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is huge. God has actually sent someone. We offended God. We sinned against God, but yet the one who deserves to punish us is now sending the rescuer. He is sending the Savior who will save us from our sin, who will save us from the penalty of that sin, who will give us His righteousness, His holiness. So this is it. I mean, there is no information greater than what we're reading right here. This is it. God is sending the Savior. He is sending the one who will bring about the forgiveness of our sins. And we see also as we look at this passage uh, Gabriel, of course, announced to Zachariah and Elizabeth. He announced to Zachariah, you will have a son. His name will be John. He does something very similar here to Mary. You will have a son. The angel actually absolutely knows for sure it is going to be a son because God knows the future perfectly as well. And his name is to be Jesus. Uh, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And many of us already know this, but it is significant. I have this up here today. If you're making notes, make sure you write it down. Matthew 121 uh, explains to us what the name Jesus means. Uh, in the simplest form, it means God saves. But in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21 of Matthew, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is huge. This is the message of all messages, uh, that someone is actually going to come and save people from their sins. How can we save ourselves from our sins? What can we do? How do we fix this ship that's constantly sinking? We can't. We can't stop the sin. We always sin, whether it's in our mind or outwardly. We can't put it away fully. What do, even if we could right now say, I'm not going to commit this sin ever again, and you truly to stop. But what about all the sin that has been committed? It deserves the wrath of God. Sin deserves punishment from a holy God. But that someone is coming to save us, to rescue us, from our sins? This is huge. And this is what the name of Jesus means. God saves. And this is why, by the way, as we, we look at these passages, we often think too small of Jesus. We At Christmas time, we think of the Jesus in the manger. But it's also good as we think of this moment to picture the whole life of Jesus. 
that this is the one who was born of a virgin. This is also the one that lived a holy, spotless, blameless life. This is also the one that could cast out demons, that could, could walk on water, that could heal the blind, heal the deaf, that could make the lame walk, that could do anything he wanted to do, calm a storm, anything he wanted to because he was God. And yet he laid down his life, the one that we're speaking, reading about here, and died on the cross. Why? For our sins. He, the righteous, holy one, takes our sins on him. This is why he came. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. This was his purpose in coming into the world. All right, let's look at verse 32. We just read over. Uh, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. So Gabriel here is announcing to Mary for the first time, yes, she is going to have a child, but it is not just any child. It is unlike any child that has ever been born up until that time. It is unlike any child that will be born after that time. That this is not just going to be the product of a husband and a wife and a regular, completely normal human being just like you and I. But there's something very special. He will be called the Son of the Most High. In other words, and we'll find out as we continue on, Jesus is not just going to be man. He is also God. And you think, well, how can that be? We, we don't have anything to compare that to. And you're absolutely right. There is no one like him. He is God, but he is also man. He is completely unique in all humankind, all history. There is no one like him. He is God. Look at the next passage here, same verse. And the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father David. Again, we see this fulfillment that we read about just in the one passage we picked in, in Samuel that, uh, that David's descendant, David's seed, would have a throne that would never end. So this is a messianic Messiah prophecy that is being fulfilled, Gabriel is saying. Look at 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he is announcing to Mary that the one that you're going to have is not just a human, but it is actually God. And the one that you're giving birth to has no end. His reign will be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, generation after generation after generation. This is a big deal. He will have all authority. So we see this. One of my favorite places to look to is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I have it on the screen for you. Feel free to look it up, though. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Again, we have a prophet who is being able to been given the ability to see something here, a message that, is, that God is bringing to him. And we see a place that is apparently after the resurrection of Christ, after he has ascended into heaven, and now he is coming before the throne of God the Father. And here in Daniel, we see what, what was prophesied about and what Gabriel is talking about here. And his disciples had a hard time seeing this, right? They wanted him to reign right then, right now. They jockeyed for position multiple times. Hey, hey, make me your right-hand man, Jesus. I want to be in charge of a lot of stuff here, okay? And, and even when Jesus is ascending into heaven, they're like, hey, now is now the time, you know, you're going to come and reign right here, and, and you're going to be the king. And they keep trying to put him only on earth, but his kingdom is far greater than that. He is God. He is not just an earthly king. And it takes all of this to finally make the disciples realize that, oh, you know, I get it. 
His kingdom is everlasting. His kingdom is far greater than just the nation of Israel. But we see in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, this beautiful picture that unfolds as, as Jesus receives all authority. And now he has always had all authority because he is God. But what is different about this is that you now have the incarnated one, the one who is God, who is also flesh now, coming back before the throne of God. And look what Daniel says. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is different, right? There, now, now there's one like a son of man. And Jesus' most common title he gives himself is this, the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that would be God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is the one that Mary is going to give birth to, the very one who will stand before God the Father and receive all authority, all kingdoms, uh, an everlasting dominion, one that will not be destroyed. This is what Gabriel is telling to her, that this is the one. You are going to have this one. And again, what makes this so significant is, of course, uh, the Son of God. God the Son has always had all authority, but now he is bringing the human form. He is bringing the flesh that he had on him. The, the incarnated God is now before God the Father receiving all authority. Uh, verse 34 and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? All right, good question. Obviously, something is missing here. She is not married. Uh, she know that, knows that it takes a mom and a dad to have a child. Uh, so she's wondering what is going to happen. How is this going to be? In verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This passage, uh, the, the, the scene, the, the passages around this, this part of the story of Jesus is one of the most attacked places in the Bible. You have multiple places that critics of the Bible like to attack. One is, of course, the creation if you can do away with God creating and all you have is accident and chance and somehow everything came to be, then there's no need in even reading the book any further, right? So you have the, the evolutionist theories and the theories out there that everything just came about by luck and chance and circumstance. And if people can believe that, <clears throat> there's no need to go any further. So if they can get rid of that. We, of course, know that God did speak and created everything. Nothing comes from chance. Nothing comes from nothing. Always remember that. When you're wondering, did God create everything? Just remember, nothing comes from nothing. You can't get something, everything, from absolutely nothing. Zero times zero is always going to be zero. But there is God. He speaks. He creates. Also, we have this point of attack where they love to attack because it, 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 it's not natural. It has never been done. It, it, one of my favorite theologians was having this discussion with a liberal theologian. And the liberal theologian said, I can't believe people still believe in the virgin birth. And he said, what do you mean? He said, why would they not believe that? And the liberal theologian said, well, you don't believe that, do you? 
He says, of course I believe that. It's right here in the Word of God. Why would I not believe that? And the liberal theologian said, well, that kind of thing just does not happen. And then and my friend theologian, the guy I love and trust, said, well, that's the whole point of it, right? It's not natural. This is supernatural. That's what the whole point of miracles in the Bible is God supernaturally breaks the natural rules that everything is going on as normal. Then all of a sudden there is a miracle, supernatural from God that has no explanation. You have a man walking on water. That is not natural, right? You have someone rising from the dead who's been dead for three days. That's not natural. That is supernatural. And here we have the supernatural invading our natural realm to have a virgin birth. One who is no man involved, but it is God himself. Um, Let's continue on to look at... Well, I do have this question for us to think about just quickly and briefly. Uh, Does this mean that Jesus was created or Jesus is eternal? And just think about that for a moment. It's something that we'll we'll dig into in the future. But uh, it is very important to understand that our Savior, that Jesus, is not created. He is, that is not the beginning of Jesus. This is not the beginning of him. He is not created. He is the eternal one, the son of God. Many of you know this passage, but a good one to go to if you're ever in a discussion uh, with a Jehovah Witness, with a Mormon who would lean, who believe that Jesus is created. We go to John 1, uh, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we have this one here mentioned, the word who, who was with God, but yet was God also. And then John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we have this one who is not created. This is not the beginning of Jesus, but this is the combination of God the Son with humanity, with flesh. All right. So make that note in your head. Uh, Verse 36, let's carry on. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her whom was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All right, Gabriel does not give her all the exacts, all the details of everything that is going to go on, but he gives her enough information here. He also uh, lets her know that your cousin, your relative, Elizabeth, has also had a supernatural intervention. She is old, she was barren, she could not have children, but now she is about to. So he kind of gives her a hint here, and Mary gets the hint. Let's continue down. Look at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste in the hill country to a town in Judah. All right, she's just heard this information directly from Gabriel that she is about to have the Messiah. This is huge news. And the last bit of information she receives is that Elizabeth has also had a supernatural intervention to allow her to have a child. So where is she going to go? She's going to go talk to Elizabeth, find out if she knows anything more, what's going on. So she goes with haste, as fast as she can. Verse 40, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is one of the most interesting passages I find in the Bible. It's just a bizarre 
manifestation of everything the Old Testament is built on, the coming messenger that has to come before the Messiah, and all of a sudden you have everything in the exact little room. You have the mother of the Messiah, you have the mother of the messenger, you have the messenger and what we think uh, at this time Mary has conceived, she, she is pregnant at this time, so you have John and you have Jesus. You have the messenger, you have the Messiah in the exact same square footage. This is an extremely unique event that's about to take place here. Look at verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Here we have the messenger. We have John, the one who has to come before the Messiah, who is in her womb. And when Elizabeth hears Mary entering in, uh, the baby leaps inside of here, uh, her. And, and now we know babies move, and that's not that uncommon, but we see where Elizabeth interprets it as a sign from God. There's something unique about her child. She knows there is. And look at this. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed, and there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is extremely interesting of what is going on here. We have this from Gabriel when he announced to Zechariah what kind of child he was going to have that the Holy Spirit would be with him from the womb. That, that there's John the Baptist, the coming messenger, is extremely unique. And even here we see some type of, of extremely unusual uh, connection with the Holy Spirit even before John is even born. So Elizabeth is there. John is within her. Mary is here. She's heard from Gabriel. Uh, we think the conception has already happened. And so they enter into the room. Just the voice of Mary causes John, that's still just a little child, to, to, to move and to be excited and to rejoice about the Messiah in some, uh, some way. And then we have Elizabeth who immediately recognizes what is going on and even says, uh, look what she says of, about the baby that is to come in verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Here we have Elizabeth already recognizing the lordship of Jesus before he is even born. This is amazing. Here we have her acknowledging that the one within Mary is not just a man, but he is God. He is Lord. I mean, it's one thing for us to imagine Jesus, our Lord, who has already, already lived, who's already died on the cross, arose from the dead, ascended into heaven. Miracle after miracle has proven that he is who he said he was. But Elizabeth's faith was so pure that she trusted fully in what was going on. And she knew that the one inside of her was actually the Lord. Uh, let's read Mary's words here in verse 46. I'm going to read uh, this entire uh, little section here. Mary's song of praise, the Magnificent. And then we'll just go back through and briefly explain a few portions of it here. But this is uh, Mary's rejoicing at, at just the magnificent, magnificent uh, message that she has received. And she says this, and we'll start in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. From behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months, and she returned to her home. Looking back over this, just very quickly, I just want to make a few comments. But if we look at verse, verse 46, verse 47, she magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God as her Savior. We know, she knew, there is no other way to be saved except from God. There is nothing we can do. As I said earlier, we, we are sinners by nature. We have sinned against God. <clears throat> we rely fully and absolutely on the mercy of God for our salvation. If we trust fully in His salvation. That salvation can only come from God to man. It is not man backwards to God. And here Mary praises God, <clears throat> her Savior. Verse 48 through 49. He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Here we see this again, this, this, where she emphasizes her, her humble estate. She is relatively young, not from this royal lineage as far as the world would look upon her and say she deserves this. She is not wealthy. She is not rich. She is just getting by. But God has blessed her even in her humble estate. So she, she is thankful. She praises God for what is going on. She knows that she doesn't deserve this. None of us deserve the mercy of God. She gives thanks to God for doing this. And look at verse 49 at the end. And holy is His name. I love this. She is not only in her prayer thanking God for what He has given her, but she, she recognizes the most important characteristic of God, which is indeed His holiness. God is holy. God is perfect. He, in, in His holiness here, he has, he has blessed them with the coming Savior. She thanks God. She, she acknowledges His holiness in her prayer. Something that we should do as well, even when we pray, is just to acknowledge who God is. God, you are holy. God, you are sovereign. God, you know all things. You're almighty God. You know, just, again, helps us recognize who He is indeed. Uh, but we see Him here lifting her out of this humble estate and blessing her. And we see this throughout the Bible. If you look back, it is not the most wealthy that God chooses. If you look back and think of, uh, or the ones that we would look to think that need to be uh, the one God chooses. If you look back and think of even David. David was the smallest, the youngest son of all the sons of Jesse. But the prophet called him to be the king. God chose him to be the king. Even here with her, one of David's descendants, we see that it is through uh, very humble beginnings, a very humble life that she is chosen by God. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. There is only one God and one God only. He solely is responsible for mercy, for giving out mercy. He and his salvation are the very same for each generation. Uh, think about that for a moment. The very God who has saved you 
is the very God who has saved everyone who has been saved before you, who will save your children, their children, and their children, and their children. And it is this God, it is this gospel that we defend, that we promote, that we constantly preach from up here, but hopefully you teach at home as well to emphasize the gospel, that there is only one method of salvation, it is through the Messiah, the one who would live a perfect life, who would die on the cross, that all who believe in him shall be saved. That message will be true throughout time for all generations. This is it. This is the culminating point. God would send one Savior. This is the Savior. For generation after generation, this is it. Salvation through this one, through the Messiah. Uh, Verse 51 through 52. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has, of course, done this in the past as we've looked, but also even now. It it is amazing for her to think that God has chosen her. Why her? Uh, He's humble. She is is in poverty, basically. She's about to be married to a carpenter. There's, There's no climbing a ladder for worldly success. She didn't choose any of those that were connected with the the system in place at the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who were wealthy and and, and reigned, the high priests she did not choose, uh, God did not choose, but God chose her, uh, this this young teenage girl, right? And so that all this system was coming down, the Roman system that had built up and all around them with the, the high power and the money and the wealth was all coming down all from this young teenager who is about to give birth to the Messiah. Uh, let's carry on. Look at verse 53. And he was filled with, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This is not to say that all rich people are bad in any way here, but this is, they're talking about, a, he's talking about a spiritual craving that you as a believer have for God and you long for Him. And we had the Lord's Supper just, I believe, last week. And it's a time for us to, to feed on Jesus and, and to recognize it's through Him that we are spiritually satisfied. And without Him, we will never be spiritually satisfied. But there are others in the world still today and even then who do not crave God and who believe that they are wealthy enough with the wealth that they have. The materialism, the things, the money, the whatever it is they want here. And they buy, they buy, they purchase, they purchase. And they, they, they establish some kind of uh, hierarchy in their mind. They think they've climbed to the top of it and they are now satisfied. And they don't hunger for the things of God. But we know that that all will come crashing down. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Yet he loses his own soul. Your soul is for eternity. Life is for a number of years, right? So we have her saying... He has filled the hungry with good things. Those who crave God, who crave the spiritual things, he is now fulfilling that. Verse 54 and 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Again, uh, this is, cannot be emphasized enough. Uh, she is bringing the Old Testament forward. And oftentimes we read the New Testament in isolation from the other two-thirds of the Word of God. She is bringing it here all the way to this moment, that this is it. What was promised to Abraham by God, that is through your seed, Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed, she is acknowledging that this is it. 
Now is the time. This is the fulfillment of all of it. This is it. God has revealed that she is going to have the Messiah. Her cousin Elizabeth is going to have the messenger. All of history is coming together right now. This is the moment. We'll pick up here where we left off next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much for this beautiful story and all the intricate details that are placed in the Gospels for us to feast on and for us to have our souls satisfied in. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing to read how what you have prophesied, sent the word you have sent through your prophets, they prophesied, and how it has come true. That the messenger came just as you said he would. The Messiah is coming just as he said you said he would. We rejoice that Jesus has come. We are on this side of this information. We are on this side of the coming Messiah. We can look back and see that it's definitely time, a special time, for the virgin gives birth to the God, to God and man, the incarnation of God, the Word of God, who lives a perfect life that we could not live, who dies on the cross and pays for the sin of all who trust in Him. He indeed is God. He is man. And He ascended into heaven. He has all authority. He has all dominion. And He is also our Savior. God, we cannot thank You enough for this gift. It is sheer mercy. We deserve punishment. We deserve the wrath. But You save us from our sins through Jesus Christ. All sins, past, present, future. It's sins that we are going to commit that we don't even know we're going to commit yet has been washed away because of this great news, the gospel, that all who believe in this Jesus Christ, their sins are forgiven. They are saved by God's Savior. God, we bask in this wonderful mercy. We bask in the grace that is found in the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray.